What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and have a great show today planned for you all. We get a lot of questions on real estate, specifically real estate syndications. And so I have brought on Dr. Kathy Carroll, who's an MD and a CFA, to go over pretty much the top 10 questions that her and I get. I get them a little bit differently because I don't run a fund and I'm not raising money. I just personally invest and I also do the podcast. So all of you kind of call in with some real estate questions. And then she also does this for a living. So she gets lots of questions that I think all of you are asking her if you were to go and invest with her and her fund at Rika.io. So we got a great show with her planned. We're also doing another financial malpractice segment this time. No fun guest. It is just me, but I think it's going to be really helpful. At least I hope that's the case. It's really helpful for all of you. And we also have a really interesting question that's playing off of the Wall Street bets, the talk of the silver short squeeze, the Bitcoin massive rally, and how it deals with taxes. So if some of you have tiptoed in and have done some of these things or have been trading or whatever it is that you're doing, and you might have taxable income, I have John McCarthy, who is our co-founder at Physician Tax Advisors, to answer the questions that someone in our community has called in. Now, before we get to the show, let's hear from our sponsor, which is MR Insurance. And they're a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael Relvis is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He provides an objective, transparent, education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers true own occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians. We really love Michael here at Financial Residency and know that he's got your best interest at heart when it comes to disability insurance. And he'd be happy to help you with whatever your needs are. You can find Michael at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance, or you can contact him at 800-817-4522. All right, now let's welcome Kathy on to the show. Kathy, welcome back on the show. Excited to have you here. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. We have you on. We talk about syndications. We talk about all sorts of good stuff. And of course, I get a thousand questions. And that means I know you're probably getting 10,001 questions Mm -hmm. on top of it. And I thought, you know what? Let's have you back on. Let's go through some of the most popular questions that I've received, that you've received And we came up with a list of 10 that I think are really good. And I think for everyone listening, this is going to be a little bit longer of a show because we're going to go over really top 10 questions that everyone has revolving around real estate syndications, multifamily syndications. So I think I'll just get started with that. And you give us maybe a short and a long answer because some of these could probably be pretty long of an answer. But let's start with an easy one. Okay. Syndications. Aren't these the same thing as crowdfunding? This one makes me chuckle, but that is definitely one that has come in quite often. The short answer is no. The long answer is, in the most general sense, crowdfunding and syndications are both people pooling their money to do something. But that is where the relationship ends. So a real estate syndication is something very specific. That's when you have a general partner who's formed an entity for the purpose of investing in real estate. Then they go out and find limited partners, passive investors, who come into that entity. Crowdfunding can be a lot of things. 
Usually when people are comparing crowdfunding to syndications, they're talking about these online portals. And there's a wide variety of the deals you'll see on the portals. Some of them are real estate investment trusts. Some of them are blind funds. And some of them might even be traditional syndications. These syndications are advertising on the online portal. So while you might see something that fits the definition of a syndication on a crowdfunding portal, crowdfunding definitely does not equal syndication. Yeah. And the way I look at it is crowdfunding, usually it's inferior. We've never seen them go through not just a bull market that we've been in, but actually turn around and see what happens when prices drop 20, 30% in the markets and see how, which ones are standing. Because we've already seen some of the big ones go out of business. Mm-hmm bull market, which is terrifying. And so I'd like to see them perform in a bear market, which is a down market. And then I'll reserve my opinion of what they do and how they do it. But personally, I'm not a huge fan at all. I prefer syndications every single time. Another question that I get on this end is, okay, I'm putting my money in. I know it's locked away, right? But they tell me in a five-year hold, let's say, will it end on time? Is that when I'm actually going to get my money? Short answer is no, because there isn't a fixed timeline. And that's actually a good thing for the investor. So suppose something absurd happens like a pandemic. If you'd been in a syndication that was supposed to end in the spring of 2020, you probably wouldn't have been very happy because they might have had to fire sale if they'd been forced to end the deal then. So syndications don't have hard timelines. They have projected timelines. It might be earlier than planned. It might be later than planned. You want it to end and the general partner wants it to end when you've maximized your profit. Now, that said, the debt that comes with this indication, that is going to have an expiration date. The bank doesn't give you a loan forever, but that can always be refinanced. So the long answer is, no, it's not going to end on time because there isn't a time. It's just a projection. That's something that you have to be very comfortable with as an investor. And if you're not, then it might not be the right fit. I want a bank to lend me super low rates forever. Let's find that. Mm -hmm. Piggybacking off this one is, well, can I pull my money out or when can I access that money? And I tell people it's very liquid, but I think it's easy one is when can someone pull their money out if they were to invest in a syndication deal? So the short answer is you can't. The longer answer is It's an illiquid investment. So what that means is you can't move in and out quickly or really at all. You should never go into the syndication with the assumption that you're going to be able to get out before the end. Now, there are maybe extremely rare cases where you could, but it is not the norm at all. It's theoretically possible a general partner might buy you out. But again, that's very odd and it's not the norm. So you have to know when you go into this that your money is locked up until the end of the deal and you don't know exactly when that is. Yeah, there's no marketplace for this. There's no, hey, we've done enough of these. We're going to put together this on a platform and you can buy and sell your way in and out of these. Once you've selected the GP and the syndication, once they've selected their property, once you've invested, you are seeing it all the way through. Mm -hmm. You are essentially quasi like the bank. You're a limited partner. You're just putting money in and letting everyone else do the work, but you can't access your money. Another question I get piggybacking off this one, so I think we're on our third piggyback here, is can I lose all my money? This is a very important one. So spend some time because 
I think it's very, very important people understand some of the risks. So all investments have risk. That's the easy answer. Anyone that tells you an investment is safe or guaranteed is lying or stupid. That's why they're called investments. They have risk. Now, the thing with the syndication is you do at least have a building. You're investing in an LLC that owns a hard asset, which should have some value even if things go horribly wrong. But that said, it is still theoretically possible you could lose all your money. A lot of bad things have to happen, but it's not impossible. A good general partner is going to have plenty of insurance to protect against damage. They'll be an accountant watching the books. But it's possible something could be mismanaged or there could be some totally unforeseen circumstance. If that happens, maybe there's not enough money left at the end to pay the equity investors. Because you have to remember, the bank is going to get paid first. So most syndications are equity deals, not debt deals. So that's probably what you've invested in. And although it's rare, it is theoretically possible you could lose all your money. Where it were. It's important to understand this isn't just in stocks and bonds and things that we typically talk about, traditional investments that are risky, involve risk. You can make and lose money. You can do that same thing in syndications. You can do that same thing in literally everything in life. Know that you can lose all your money inside that. Unlikely for reasons that you said, and there's a lot of very fantastic reasons to invest in real estate. But again, everything has its risks. So please, please, please take that away from the show. The question that I know you get is, well, hey, I'm going to invest into this deal. And I've heard in the grapevine on the podcast, the blogs, whatever, that I need an LLC in order to invest in real estate. So is that same thing hold true with syndications? Should someone get an LLC before they set up and invest in a syndication? I would definitely answer with ask your lawyer. But really what people I think are asking is what's their liability? It's important to understand that if you invest in a syndication, you're not buying property. So suppose you invest in a multifamily syndication and it's got 300 units. You are not buying one of those units. You're not even buying into the building at all. You're investing into a security that controls the building. So you don't have a direct investment and therefore you don't have a direct exposure to that property. Now you might want an LLC for other reasons like estate planning, but that is definitely a question for your lawyer. Yeah. It's not like you have the liability piece. That's really with the general partner and you're setting up these entities. You are an LP or a limited partner. It means you have limited liability. The entire amount that you put in is at risk of loss. But it's not, oh, you lost the 50K you put in and the building lost even more money. Therefore, you got to put more money in. It's up to your total investment. We'll never exceed that. This one makes me cringe a little, but sometimes I see on forums, and I know this is a question you get asked, is how much should I invest? I'll let you go with this one for a second and I'll get on my soapbox after. But how much should someone invest in a syndication? So I will never answer that. And there's a reason. So I know this really smart guy who says that personal finance is personal. And that's definitely true. I don't know how close you are to retirement. Don't know what your tax situation is. I don't know what your financial obligations are. I'm not your financial planner, your bookkeeper, your CPA. So you need to figure out, ideally with the help of a team made of those people, how much you can invest in syndications. So the question you want to ask is, how much is reasonable for me to invest in an illiquid real estate investment that potentially has a high return? 
So that's the question, but I can't give you the answer. That's one of those, listen to what we're saying here or what we say on other shows or what you read out there on the blogosphere or in your news. But again, you're crowdsourcing information. You're supposed to then be processing and analyzing that information and making it applicable to yourself. No one else can tell you what that is. Now they can have minimums and that's just the minimum that they require anyone to invest in the deal, right? So I'm going to invest with Kathy at Rika and I need to put money in. And Kathy says, well, hey guys, the minimum that you can invest is $50,000. Now you can go up to millions of dollars, but the minimum you can invest is that. If you don't have that in your portfolio, then obviously you can't invest. But that does not mean that is the recommendation for what you need to do or more than that. It is simply stating the minimum. The financial planner in me says, make sure that you've paid down your debts, you've done the right things, you've got plenty of cash flow, you've got plenty of emergency fund, and you're going to earmark a percentage of your portfolio to real estate. And when you have enough a certain allocated a dollar amount, let's say 50K, that should be earmarked for real estate, then it might be okay to do that. But again, no one can actually tell you that but yourself or your financial planner. So make sure that you do your due diligence before making any investment stuff. This next question has been all over. We have gotten this, I don't know, at least 40 times at Physician Well Services. And our clients have been asking us, and I'm not going to say where, but hey, I read out there in the internet that we should take money from our 401k and invest it into real estate. So I'm sure you've gotten that question, but this is one that, that bothers me quite a bit, but I'll let you answer that. This is probably my least favorite question because it makes me nervous. Now I'll say that the short answer is I'm never going to answer that. But what I will usually do is say, why did you put that money in your 401k in the first place? You hopefully had a plan. So what was that plan? Why does your 401k exist? And you have to decide what to do with your money because it's your money, not mine. I've got no business telling you what to do with it. And I'm also not your financial planner. But I always encourage people to ask themselves, why do I have a 401k or whatever asset is they want to sell? And is that reason still true? You can get on your soapbox now. I'm adjusting myself in my seat, mm-hmm. stretching a Take little, ready to answer this question. Okay, answer, and I'm not your financial planner, but I'm going to tell you right now, no, never steal from your 401k to go invest in something that is super illiquid. It makes zero sense. As a physician, you are already behind all your peers that you went to college with. They went on maybe to graduate degrees for a year or two years after, and then they started working. And when they started working, at 22 or 24, they were paying down some of their debt. They were putting money into their 401ks or 403bs, their IRAs, doing all that stuff. Meanwhile, you were racking up lots of student loan debt, which was absolutely critical in order to become a physician. So don't beat yourself up over that. But their net worth was going up. Your net worth was going down. Very polar opposites. You then had this extended residency, potentially fellowship. You're now an attending and you have a lot of catch up to do. So your retirement accounts, and this is why we talk about when we look at how much do you save and spend with the 50% fixed expenses, 25% variable, and then 25% savings, that is higher than what most people say. And that is because they haven't ran the math hundreds and hundreds of times to see that you are going to already have to max out your retirement accounts and save additional money in order to be successful in your financial careers, especially if you don't want to work 
to 70 or 75 as a physician. So stealing from your 401k to then turn around, and I'm saying the word stealing because that's honestly how I view it, to then go and invest in anything. I don't care if it's syndications or gold or a business or anything. Do not steal from your own retirement and steal from your future self. Just please, please, please do not do that at all, ever. So that's a no? I'm going to say that's a no. I mean, maybe. No, that's a no. Okay. <laughs> please, please, please don't ever do that. Mm-hmm. One of the questions you got asked is, should we do this in a 1031 exchange? Can I 1031 exchange maybe into this? And I think before we dig into the answer of that, maybe tell everyone what a 1031 exchange is. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, should we do that? Yes or no? So the 1031 exchange is basically the government's gift to real estate investors. So suppose you have a property, you bought a duplex, it's gone up and you're ready to sell. But of course, you don't want to pay the tax. You don't want to pay tax on the capital gain. There's something called a 1031, and I won't go into the details. But essentially, if you move it directly into another real estate investment, you can simply kick the can down the road. You don't have to pay the capital gains tax if you use a 1031 and go right from one real estate investment to another. Now, 1031s and syndications don't mesh that well. So the short answer is no, you probably can't do a 1031 exchange in or out of the syndication. It's not impossible, but it's not normal. It is an exception and not the rule. It's complicated and a bit expensive. So I would definitely tell someone not to go into a syndication with the belief that you can 1031 the money in or out. And then the other wild card is there's no guarantee a 1031 exchange will even exist by the time the syndication is over. The tax laws are fluid, so I would hate to think somebody would base their investment decision on that belief. Yeah, tax law changes all the time, it feels like recently. So basing future decisions on taxes is always tough and risky, but it's got to be like kind, and that's why they don't really mesh too well together. But staying on the tax front, so I, full disclosure, have invested with Kathy in the last deal that you had with Element 41 and fantastic deal. And I know you've got other stuff coming up, but when I invested, I get a K-1 from that investment. And I think understanding what the K-1 is and why I might get a negative K-1 for this deal, at least in year one, but understanding how taxes work around syndications. And I think using Element is a perfectly fine example since that is an absolute done deal. You can't invest in it. It is long Mm -hmm. gone. The ship has sailed. So I think we can utilize that as a reference point. All right. So for the taxes first, you always have to ask your tax professional. I quit doing my taxes many years ago, and that is some of the best money that I spend all year. Tax laws change. And the biggest danger is that you don't know what you don't know. So unless you're a tax expert, you don't even know that you've made a mistake or you've missed something. I will explain, though, just very generally how taxes work with syndications. So every year you're going to get a K-1, which is just a piece of paper that shows the IRS how much you made in the syndication. That K-1 is going to show the benefit of depreciation. So the money that went into your bank account will not match what's on the K-1 because the K-1 is going to show depreciation which in the beginning is just paper. Now, the problem is you got money in the bank, you have a K-1, the K-1 may very well be negative. So what you really want to know is, does this mean I pay less tax? And that's not something I can answer. I don't know if you have maybe other passive gains that this would offset. 
I don't know if you're a real estate professional, which is a whole nother conversation. You may have to file taxes in the state where the syndication is located, although that does not necessarily mean you're going to be double taxed. So there's a lot of granular information that you need to answer that question that I don't have. And even if I had it, I don't do my own taxes anymore. So I would always encourage somebody to run this by their tax professional before they decide whether or not they want to invest. And previously we had John McCarthy on, who's our co-founder at Physician Tax Advisors. And we talked a ton about tax. We did carry out a little bit about syndication stuff because John does all my personal returns and my business returns has done everything for me for five, six years now. And when we receive those K-1s, if we need to file in that state, that's fine. There's usually reciprocity. We're almost like notice filing for the state. But I get negative K-1s in some of these deals, and that does offset some of my gains that I have in other deals that I've invested in. So it's kind of neat. But again, I am very different than many of you listening. Some of you have significantly more real estate deals than I've done. Some of you have never done a deal, and one deal will not be earth shattering to your taxes, especially if you have no other gains to potentially offset. But I absolutely love the negative K-1s that come in the first year of doing these because that helps my tax situation going forward. But if you need a CPA, highly recommend, shameless plug here, but to reach out to physician tax advisors. We're no longer taking 2020 tax clients, but 2021 will be available and starting to work with everyone in May. Kathy, I think this is a very, very good question to end on. And I've seen it phrased a little bit differently, but I think we'll hit the same question here. You wrote, how do I know that this isn't a scam? And the one that I usually get is, I'm going to put money into this deal. How can I verify that they bought this property? What's the chain that we can go to see, oh, I put money here and therefore this property was purchased by this entity? You have a couple of different ways to go about it. So the one that I like because it's the most concrete is Edgar. So the SEC has a website called Edgar. It's sec.gov forward slash Edgar, E-D-G-A-R, like the man's name. If you go to that website and you search for Catherine Carroll, you're going to find me. Or if you search for Rika Element 41, my last deal, you're going to see that. So the SEC knows who I am and I've registered my syndication with them. On a side note, I am not the Catherine Carroll that is associated with marijuana investing. I have no opinion either way. Just that's not me. That's awesome. But that's what you'll see when you put my name in, but not me. Now, I will add that there is a long lag between when you file paperwork with the SEC and when it shows up in Edgar. So if you are researching a deal and it's the early days of the deal and there's nothing in Edgar, that doesn't mean it's a scam. It just means the government is slow. But there's other things you can look at, too. Your most basic research would be to check the Internet to see is there a LinkedIn, Facebook, a website. Obviously, that is not a guarantee of of anything, but that's your starting point. You can talk to other investors who've been on past deals. If you really want to get into the weeds, you can hop on Google Maps and see that the property exists. You could even ask the syndicator if they'll share the purchase and sale agreement. So you have a lot of levers to pull. You have a lot of ways to check and see that this is legit. And I always think people should do that. It's not an insignificant amount of money to anyone. And usually you have to wire, which is scary. So you do want to do all your due diligence before you make a decision. 
Yeah. There's something when they buy the property called a settlement statement, and you can actually ask to see that. Mm -hmm. If it's a GP or syndicate that's been around a while, they're going to know that people are going to potentially ask for that and should be happy to help you out and verify, making sure that you feel very comfortable because think about it from their perspective. If their investors are all happy and comfortable, the next time they have a deal, where do you think they're going to go first, raise more money to current investors, right? As long as the current investors have money to place and they're currently happy with their deals, then they're likely to put at least something else in or at least some of them will. So they're incentivized to help make you feel comfortable as you go through the investing process. You mentioned wiring, and I think I'll end on this piece, is that there is a ton of wire fraud out there. And when you are going to wire money, you can do it a couple different ways. But what I typically like doing, especially if it's the first time I've ever wired somewhere, is I'll send a small wire, a hundred bucks, whatever it is, to test the wire, make sure that the money received in the right account, and then I will wire the full amount if I was to do that. If I already know the person, if I've already done the deals and the wire instructions haven't changed and a wire's already gone there, I feel very comfortable. I'm just going to send the whole amount. But that is something that I think for anything, regardless of syndications, if you're going to wire any money at all, I really am a fan of the test wire, but at least do the second piece if you're not going to do that, right? Because it incurs a double fee of 40, 30 bucks to send a wire or whatever. But if you're not going to do that, call the person and read the instructions and the person you've been talking with this whole time go, hey, I know this is silly. I know you just sent this. I just want to double check before I wire 50, 75, 100,000, whatever, that this is the right spots and everything's done correctly. And this is all the pieces because wire fraud is very rampant. It's usually targeting people who are buying homes and single family homes that aren't investors. They're buying their primary residence. But we've seen a lot of it. I've had a couple of friends that sadly have lost a lot of money when somehow they got a phishing email that changed the wire instructions that said escrow changed and escrow didn't change. You got taken advantage of, unfortunately. So please don't let that be you guys. Kathy, you have a course coming out pretty soon. Maybe carried out the course a little bit so everyone can know what's coming and where to find that when it comes. And I've already seen some behind the scenes stuff, which I'm very impressed with the quality that all of you have really put out, but tell everyone a little bit about that one. And then also where to find you for any future deals that are coming down the pipeline. Sure. We are working on a course. It's myself and a couple other people who are very well versed in syndications. So we have a lot of experts and the goal is to take someone from A to Z through understanding a syndication, vetting the sponsor, how to make a decision on whether or not this is a good deal for their portfolio. So hopefully that's going to come out sooner rather than later. We'll definitely send that out and we'll have that posted on my website at rica.io. So it's ryca.io. Awesome. Like I said, I've invested with Kathy. I love what you guys are doing. I think the course was also fantastic and excited for what's coming in 2021. But thank you so much for coming on the show and going over kind of some of these top 10 questions with me because I get asked these quite a bit in our email. And I know that you probably get asked this a billion and a half times. So hopefully this was helpful for everyone listening. And Kathy, thanks so much for coming back on. Thank you. Well, it's always nice having Kathy back on the show to help us out. And let's transition over to our curbside consult. We have a question that was called in from someone in our community. One of you has been doing some stuff, maybe investing in some silver, maybe investing in some Bitcoin, who knows, maybe it was some GameStop. 
and you have some gains. And this is what this community member has going on. And I have brought on special guest, John McCarthy from Physician Tax Advisors, which is our CPA firm that we started to help physicians just honestly do some tax planning and preparation. So let's hear from our community member and John's answer. Hi, Ryan. This is Jim from SoCal. I had a question for you about some of the new alternative investments that are going on. I got wrapped up in all the crypto hype and I went out and I got a Coinbase account and uh, bought some Bitcoin. And when all of the uh, Wall Street bet hype was going on, I bought some silver. It did okay in that, actually. It didn't really go up as much as I would have liked, but uh, I did make some gains. And now I have some concerns about the taxation on these things. And I was wondering if that's something you could talk a little bit about and going over the tax taxation of crypto and this day trading stuff. Uh, That would be great. Thank you very much. Love the show. Bye. Jip, thanks. These are a lot of great questions. So we'll go through them here one by one. You asked two great questions, one regarding the taxation of Bitcoin and one talking about precious metals. So let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin first. The important thing to remember is that the IRS does consider this to be income. So it is a reportable transaction on the return. They've taken a lot of interest in virtual currencies over the last couple of years. And they're going to ask a question on this year's return, actually, if you've had any transactions, including purchases or sales of virtual currency. So make sure you're answering that that question on the return. But the taxation of Bitcoin and other virtual currencies is taxed very similar to how stocks are taxed for tax purposes. So you can have a varying tax rate for these anywhere from about 15% to 23.8%, depending on how long you've held the Bitcoin. So the important thing to remember is that you know it's taxed similar to stocks as gains, whatever your sales price is or transaction prices for the Bitcoin minus what you originally purchased it for is going to be what the gain is that you're going to be taxed on your return. So you're going to have to keep good records of all those transactions. Anytime you spend Bitcoin for something, that's considered a taxable sale. So be sure you've got some good records downloaded for that and keep good track of that. Let's talk a little bit about your precious metals question. You were talking specifically about silver, but precious metals would include gold as well. And as with many things, the IRS has some special rules on how these things are taxed. They're considered precious metals and collectibles for U.S. tax purposes. So what that means is that instead of the normal long-term capital gain rates that you might have for a regular kind of stock acquisition or stock purchase, you're subject to a 28% tax rate, which is just unique to these precious metals, but it's a 28% capital gains rate on any gain that you have. The tricky part is there's all types of different ways that you can invest in precious metals. So the 28% tax rate is related to physical gold. So coins, gold ETFs, where you actually own a share of physical gold somewhere. Common ones here are the spiders and high shares investments, the ETFs. All of those are going to be subject to the 28% capital gain rate. There's a couple other ways to invest in gold. There's closed-end funds. There's some special reporting there if you've got an offshore one of those. So be sure to talk to accountant if you've got one of those. I won't mention it here because it gets pretty detailed, but there is some special reporting for those closed-end funds that you need to be aware of. You can also invest in a gold-like type type of funds, things that are like gold mining companies, gold mutual funds, things like that. Those are generally taxed like other types of stock investments. So they're going to have the regular short-term and long-term capital gain rates that we talked about earlier, anywhere from 15 to 23.8%. So the long story short is it's really important to know what type of precious metal investment that you have so that you know which rate to apply for on your return. So great questions. Jim, keep them coming. Thanks. 
So hopefully that was good clarifications on what you're doing with some of these gains that you maybe have. Hopefully they're not losses, but if they're gains, that's awesome. But again, this should be with play money because that is not investing. That is pure speculation and just absolute craziness that's going on in the markets with Wall Street bets. You know, it's actually good entertainment, I think. I got some popcorn. I'm watching this stuff. It's fun. I'm listening to the hearing. It's also comical that no one in Congress can actually use Zoom, even though we're a year into the pandemic. Basically, you can barely see them, barely hear them, except for the only person that had their correct microphone and settings was the guy from Wall Street Bets. And that was the only one we could basically hear correctly. But it was interesting. I don't know if any of you had seen the hearing that has been going on, but it's been fascinating to watch that as well. But thank you, John, for coming on and answering the question. And if you would like your question answered on the show, likely it's going to be answered by me. Every once in a while, we'll bring on someone fun that is knowledgeable, like John is, and to answer your questions. But you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash question. All right, now let's move over to our financial malpractice. And this time it is a real special guest. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually just me. Let's head over there. I really like this segment. It's been interesting to hear some of the stories and some of the things coming around. And hopefully you guys are learning something from each and every one of these on what happened, what not to do, and how to fix things if you happen to be in that situation. The financial malpractice or financial horror story that I have for you guys today is a common one that we see with new attendings that they finished training, they did all these certain things that let's say weren't a good thing, and then they kind of feel stuck, right? So the story I have for you was there's a family with a couple kids, they had gone through training and they ended up living off of too much money that they didn't really have. They were spending money that they knew that they were going to earn as a high paying specialty. And so as they went through residency and fellowship, they started pre-spending that money, racking up some credit card debt with the idea of, well, I'll just pay this off later. I know that, look, my first paycheck could pay off almost this entire balance, so it's okay. And they taught themselves really poor financial behaviors, living for tomorrow and not realizing how that actually will impact them. But then as they finished training, they ended up moving out towards the Midwest and they ended up buying one of the biggest homes in the area. Now, if that was their only goal and their only thing that caused their lifestyle to inflate, we could say that that would be fine. But they bought a home in an actual area that really can't support it. As an example, just so I'm making myself clear here, let's say they bought a house that was a million dollars when everything around it was three hundred dollars or $400,000. And they bought this because it was the dream home that checked every box and had everything that they could ever want. Now, in reality, it was probably another physician who owned it and they bailed that physician out. I mean, who knows what the story really was with that, but it didn't just end there. They then said, well, my car's been old. It's been breaking down. I'm going to buy the new truck or the new car, whatever it ends up being. They were not squirreling any money away in retirement because they were too busy paying back their credit card bills. Right? Because if they finished training, they started work, let's say in September, September, October, November, December, there's four months, but that's four months that they could have been putting up to $19,500 away, but they couldn't because by the end of training, they'd racked up almost $100,000 in credit card debt. Again, that was for lifestyle that they were living during training. 
and not for interviews or anything else. This was money that they really didn't have, but they were always saying, well, I'll just pay it off when I become an attending. They ended up giving loans to family members for people in time of need. Oh, $2,000 here for this, $1,000 here for that. Now, one, if you give loans to family, treat this as a donation because you're likely not to get it back. And so don't give away money you really need. But also like this was not a time that you should be giving money and loans out. You need to work through your own credit card debts and your own spending habits. They were donating a ton to charities and charitable organizations. Let's just say it was a church, for example. At this point in time, when you're giving away a boatload of money to charity, that's awesome because you're now making money. But when your own financial house is getting destroyed, that might not be the best option for you at the time. Maybe donate a little bit. And then when your financial house is built in an order and got firm structure to it, then donate even more than you would have in the beginning. They also had massive tax bills because not only were they not putting in money into their 401ks and IRAs, they weren't making any investments. They actually had owed tax money. They didn't realize that when they were earning 1099 income for September, October, November, December, and even onward into this, that they had to withhold money for their taxes. So they had a massive tax bill when tax time came around the following April. They had made their situation so they were working extra shifts just to cover the lifestyle. And honestly, for a long time, they weren't even prepared to make any changes because they were ostriches. They were shoving their head in the sand and pretending this wasn't really happening. Now, obviously, you guys can see what was happening. And, you know, as we kind of break down the story, what I want you guys to take away from this is things can happen and mistakes are going to be made. Anything in the past is in the past. You're not going to fix it. But what we can do is to realize the mistakes that were made and we can end up trying to get on a better financial footing. And this has a nice happy ending. Eventually they came around and said, oof, we've got some issues. We've made some errors. Let's figure out how to right some wrongs. They ended up clearing off their credit card debt. They ended up figuring out how to actually save into budget, which is awesome. And they ended up getting to the point where they didn't need to take extra shifts to have to live. They took extra shifts because they liked the actual idea that they could pay down their debts faster. And this was actually someone who sent in this as an email to me, which kind of sparked the whole financial malpractice segment. So lots of things I think you guys can take away. Lots of things that you probably identified as I was talking through it. But hopefully this will put a little bit into perspective. And I truly appreciate this person writing it in. And I think everyone can learn a little something from it. Before we end, I want to make sure that we mention our sponsor one last time. And that is don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants with Michael Relvis, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit your unique needs. So reach out for both excellent and quality service by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash MR Insurance. All right. And to close this thing out, I want to tell you all, thank you so much for being here. We really, really appreciate you. Everything that you guys are doing by sharing the podcast and really helping the financial residency podcast get out to helping more physicians. It's really appreciated. I know that we're helping so many physicians. Our community is growing. We're well over a million downloads now. And if you haven't joined our community, I highly encourage you to do that by going to financialresidency.com slash community. 
and come in, ask us questions. And guess what? We are going to be doing more engagement with the community out on our podcast. So please make sure you make comments, posts, ask your questions. I'll be jumping in every once in a while to help facilitate some of the conversation. But of course, our community manager, Peggy Carter, no, that's not her real name. And yes, technically it violates a Facebook rule that you can't have an alias on there, but I'm a nerd and I like all sorts of stuff. And Peggy Carter, if you don't know who it is, put it in Google. It'll tell you how big of a nerd I am. But she's in there to help moderate and facilitate discussions and to give you links and references to all the fun things we've been creating or doing or at least even helpful tips and tricks inside there. I think she's even linked to an IRS guideline for you for someone who had a question. So we're here to help you out. If you haven't joined us, please do financialresidency.com slash community. Little man, why guy, take it away. Let's listen to this really important disclaimer. All right, have a great week, and I will see you guys on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. 